Hey everybody, this is Jonathan Martin and you're listening to the Zeitcast. So tonight I'm doing the thing that I really intended to do a lot more frequently with this podcast than I have. So maybe we'll consider this a bit of an experiment. That's just turning on the microphone and hitting record and see what happens. Tonight, as I'm sitting here, Edmond, Oklahoma, just a little bit outside of Oklahoma City, of course, five people, including the gunman, are dead tonight at a hospital, St. Francis in Tulsa, about 90 minutes away from us. Uh, that's the hospital where our eldest daughter, Caitlin, was born. And, of course, I lived in Tulsa for several years. I don't want to, in any kind of emotionally heavy-handed way, make too much of any of that. I think part of what's happening in this time in which we now have more mass shootings than days in the year here in America is that we're moving from having this vague sense that through monuments, handful of spaces here and there where atrocities have happened, that people know something of what it's like to visit um, on the site where the planes went down on September 11th, or to visit the Oklahoma City bombing memorial. That's one way of having a shared or collective sense of grief. It's very different now that we're getting into a time where there just are no public spaces um, at some point. Schools, movie theaters, hospitals, that people don't have a direct connection to, not necessarily having experienced trauma there before, but maybe an experience that was good, sometimes life-giving, to where now that space has become a crime scene. kind of language, actually, I use in the new book, The Road Away from God, about Jerusalem for the disciples, how the sacred space becomes an unsafe space. And the place that once was consecrated uh, now has the yellow crime tape, uh, in, in a very literal sense, uh, where it feels like there's fewer and fewer safe spaces. I don't, I'm not making fun of that, but I don't mean that in the sense of there being places without bullying, safe places where people don't have to think about the threat of mass murder in some kind of a public space. And when I talk about something like this, when I talk about guns, as I did a little in the sermon uh, that you heard in the last episode, part of where I struggle in general these days is not so much clarity about what I feel, but you know, I'm really not interested in just preaching to the choir. It's never been fun to me. I never liked the idea of just sort of revving up the faithful. I'm kind of irritated by it. I never liked it when I felt like preachers would kind of take cheap shots at certain groups of people just to get them in because they know it's going to play in the room. And I thought no matter where you are ideologically, um, there's always a way that you can do that. There's all the ways that you can play to the amen of the people who you know are going to be with you. I'm far more interested in figuring out how there's some way uh, to to build bridges 
and have real conversations, yet, of course, in this very polarizing moment, becomes increasingly difficult to do. And part of what I gestured at in the sermon the other night was this notion of, because I do feel like the issues around guns and gun control in America illustrate this principle more clearly than I see it anywhere else. There are other areas, but I feel like it is where I see it the clearest. Where you're essentially talking about data-free conversations, that no matter what kind of statistics you line up, uh, no matter how you're able to back up claims, um, the way that people are able to pull certain kind of emotional levers, people certainly a priori have decided what they're going to think about the conversation in a way that uh, makes it nearly impossible to change anybody else's mind. Where I find this to be so eerie when it comes to guns, and I know that I come from a particular perspective at this point in my life as a person who's very much influenced by not only the explicit teachings of Jesus, but an understanding of the teachings of Jesus that is rooted in nonviolence, not as uh, simply the absence of violence, but nonviolence as a political strategy, nonviolence as um, counter-maneuver, nonviolence as a way of life, nonviolence not as a way of passive resistance, but actually of active of active resistance, nonviolence as a way of active non-cooperation with principalities and powers in the world that dominate and exploit. I have a particular view, to be sure. But I also at least attempt to be a rational person, and I want to be open. And the same way I was when I was young, it's what led me out of some spaces and into some others, and out of some ideas into some others. I want to always follow the truth wherever it goes. And in this conversation in particular, when it comes to guns, it's so difficult to watch the extent to which people just refuse to follow the data where it inevitably goes. Now, I'm a both-and person, not neither or More than one thing can certainly be true at the same time. So, absolutely it's true that in our country right now, we know, and the pandemic, I feel like, excavated this for us. The, the, the mental health crisis in our country, and we know that we don't have enough professionals to meet the demand. We know a lot of people uh, don't have access to those kind of um, professionals, don't have access to those kind of resources. But we know um, that we're a, just a fun house of pathologies here in America. And so many of us dealing with all kinds of complex realities, some that do have to do with chemical imbalance, some that do have to, that are genetics, some that have to do with our experience, where we grew up, how we grew up. Um, does any of those things on that list are real? Anything that you perceive, anything that you go through, anything that forms you, it's real, has to be dealt with in some form or another. And we don't have the resource to deal with these things. So absolutely there's a mental health crisis. And... There are all kinds of things, at least, that could be said to reflect on glorification of violence in media, the kind of thing that makes the rounds every so often, video games, gore, and kids are watching horror movies when they're six or something, whatever, I don't know. 
the kinds of things people say. It still, though, on some level, when it comes to this conversation, always strikes me as being a bit silly because at the end of the day, and I, I really want to say this almost as coldly and rationally as I can, there, there just there's not really different ways of looking at this. If we have, if we had better infrastructure that helped people get the kind of uh, mental health, the kind of resourcing that they need in that way. But people at any given time have access to the most extreme kinds of weapons. Weapons that aren't used for hunting, weapons that nobody had in mind when people were shooting muskets, when these founding documents <laughs> that people hold very sacred, uh, more so than scripture, usually, uh, for people of faith, usually hold these documents to be more inspired, actually more sacred than scripture. But however you feel about that, nobody had, uh, in the time of muskets, nobody had uh, automatic and semi-automatic weapons in mind, and these certainly aren't used for hunting deer. No matter how you do the math, you especially we we know enough about the developed world. Uh, I don't love that phrase actually, uh, so be careful about that. But we know enough about the Western world. We're able to look at the countries. We're able to see this, where people don't have access to the same kind of weapons. The same kinds of things don't happen. You don't really have mass stabbings. The same media, the same technology, the same kind of violence. I feel like he's old enough now. This feels more like my generation, but if you want to use it, it's like a, almost allegorically speaking. Uh, everybody's watching the same Quentin Tarantino movies, all right? So everybody has access to the same media. The same media that dominates in America dominates the world and sets the agenda for the rest of the world. Everybody has access to that. Not everybody has access to the same weapons, um, there are places that have better access to, um, in terms of mental health resources. But the thing that bears out consistently over and over again, it just becomes undeniable. Like there is absolutely no way that people, if they have the capacity, if they have the power within their grasp to be able to get to certain kinds of weapons in moments of frustrations and moments of anger, we've seen far too often, like how overwhelmingly, that and we know nothing about the circumstance of the shooting night, but nothing, nothing I would hear could change my mind about this. We, we've seen it enough times to know most of these weapons are legally purchased. Um, they're generally legally purchased. Um, sometimes it might be a, a weapon that belonged to a parent, like whatever. But, but legally purchased weapons, there's always this kind of mass shrugging of our shoulders and what can we really do? And how about the black market? And well, you know, there's. Um, uh, they have laws against these things in Chicago, but there's still crime there. Hey, whatever ways that we need to talk about very seriously, and I think there's all kind of issues in terms of limitation. I mean, I always go to Australia. Australia had exactly one shooting like this. And it's like, that's it. That's enough. There was a collective will where people said nothing matters to us more than the safety of our neighbors, the safety of our fellow citizens, and so you have this idea that you can't just round up people's guns. Well, you sort of can. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I think especially when it comes to certain <laughs> kinds of weapons, um, you know, 
I probably would fall on the end of extreme measures, and I'm not helping myself here, but um, but hear me out. You know, it happened exactly once. Didn't happen again. Does it continue to happen? I mean, the idea that this continues to go on. I I don't mean to be irreverent here. If people prayed more, that's not the difference. You don't have these kind of shootings in Japan. This has nothing to do with following Jesus. It just doesn't. That's frustrating me because that pins all of this on some deity in the sky to do something that is somebody who does believe in God as the Yahweh of the Hebrew Bible, who's the father of Jesus, who uh, raised up Israel out of Egypt and Jesus of Nazareth out of the dead, as a person who believes in that kind of God. It is such hokum to me that things that are so clearly within our control, clearly within our purview, we have the power to change it. We have the power to do something about it. You don't have to pray more to change it. That's just not true. Would I like to see some kind of moral awakening? I might mean that differently than other people would mean it because my idea of a movement of conscience is a movement of compassion and empathy uh, towards people who are on the outer edges of things. It's not, it's not moralism. It's not piety. But yeah, I'd love to see a moral awakening. But I can tell you this, having a mass moral awakening would not would not make the difference when the you hit a certain tipping point in terms of accessibility there are certain and i think this is not just about guns actually we're in over our heads with our technology and when people have the capacity to reach for these tools they're really out of their depth to be able to get to whenever they're struggling in some way you know you get to a certain point to where pray all you want have all the kind of moral awakening, moral revival. I'm in favor of that too. But I'm telling you, as long as this swath of people, and I'm not saying you know, those people in some kind of pejorative way, that when people snap, when people go to the edge, when they feel pushed to the extreme, that there's that kind of accessibility. We're, we're not built for that. We're not built for that kind of freedom. I don't believe. And this is really all I'm trying to say because, you know, if any of this feels like talking points, I, you, you get plenty of that on MSNBC and Fox News. So I'm not trying to, to rehash any of that. Here's the thing I want to say that I don't feel like I hear getting said. And I don't know if it's especially unique or original or helpful, but this is just what I think about. I wish that we could zoom out. And instead of making this conversation about the thing that it's always about, because if like, here becomes the issue, it always becomes an issue of what we believe about individual rights. And as a person who's not into very fine people on both sides and everything's equally bad in one direction or another, I actually don't think that, and I'm not trying to say that. But I will say it legitimately disturbs me how often that the lens, the grid through which we think about the most intense, weighty moral issues of our time becomes this, <laughs> this whole question of, of individual rights. There's just this extreme, extravagant weight to it. This idea almost that the rights of a human being are so sacred that rights, and please understand how I'm using that word, a right to certain freedoms and expectation. And this is how I think this plays out. 
an expectation of being able to do whatever you want. That baseline desire of I have to be able to all costs be able to do whatever I want overrides everything. And it is a it is a sacred impulse. It's one of the reasons I do feel about this, even though I don't think it's just about prayer. And I don't think you can just say Jesus' name a bunch of times and that does it. And I don't think prayer in schools fixes everything. None of I, I don't believe any of that. But where I do believe all of this is deeply spiritual is there's no other way to account for the cult-like, slobbering, <laughs> um, j- just ways that people give in to that impulse, that there is this, there is something that is so, so sacred about people's capacity their power to be able to do what they want within a given moment, that nothing overrides that. I'm not getting into other issues right now because that's just not what I'm doing tonight, but I will tell you, even on other issues, even on other questions, where I might agree with people on some of the same fundamental conclusions, you know, the math cannot be the same for me because I don't, any language too centered on individual rights as defined as the power to be able to do whatever you want in the moment is just not particularly compelling to me because I don't think these are really the weighty, I don't think they're the weightiest questions. And I think it's unhelpful that those assumptions just get swallowed up uncritically. Well, of course, everybody should have the right. Every individual has the right And yes, we would rather see any degree of terror, horror of places and even people that we love be ravaged so long as we preserve these kinds of rights at all costs. There's something so cultic about that. There's something that I think on some level is deeply evil about it. But here's the thing, and it's why I want to frame this. In a, in a very particular way. No one really chooses to be evil, do they? No one does. Man, and this is where... <laughs> Sorry to cuss right there. Facebook, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But definitely Facebook. Can just be the most frustrating. Because everything impugns everybody's motives. Someone disagrees with you in some way. Well, it's because they're obviously the evil people. It's because that's the crowd that likes to murder babies. I'm sure they're thinking about a baby sandwich right now. They're just going, you know, everything is put in those kind of terms. Uh, you know, uh, people who care, have, care about responsible gun control, well, obviously they, uh, they, they want to take everybody's freedom and they're authoritarians. Or the idea, actually, uh, to put that the other way, that people who might be a little more open on some of those things, I think some of it just gets into stuff that's just nonsense. But maybe a little more open on those things, I, I, I get. Not everybody is a terrorist. And um, the, the idea is that they're wanting to maintain people should be able to go and, and shoot up them all. Um, what I'm trying to say, though, is that no one really chooses. Nobody backs out of the driveway being motivated consciously by a sense of evil. But see, this is what happens, right? Is that an affection gets misplaced 
and something that in and of itself isn't really all that bad, right? Because autonomy is actually really, really important. Agency is really important. I don't know exactly what it is that I'm doing, but if I am some sort of a spiritual teacher, if that's going to call me that, I talk about spirituality because I care about it. I don't do that in a heavy-handed way. I don't do it in a preachy way. Nothing's on a pedestal or a soapbox, any of that. But talk about spirituality. And when I talk about spirituality in the different ways that I do to people, you know, I always emphasize agency matters. I teach people not to 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 be uh, well to be suspect of people that try to take their sense of agency. Anybody who tells them some version of you can't listen to yourself, you've got to listen to me. You know, which inevitably the way they're going to say it is you can't trust yourself. You got to trust God. But they mean God and me because I'm the one who discerns God's word. I'm the one who hears the Holy Spirit just right. I'm the one who discerns the Bible in a way that you can't. You can't trust yourself to do these things. You have to trust me. Anybody tells you don't listen to your own voice, listen to mine. Man, I'd run out the door. I'm, I believe in agency. I believe in um, having the capacity to choose in that way. Uh, that's also a through line a lot in the new book is this idea that God always, always, always is the God who, for whom coercion is just not an alternative, right? Like God, the God who will do, the God who's willing to do anything to get to us except coerce us against our will. That's one thing God will not do is override our capacity to choose. So I'm for agency. I'm for a strong sense of self. I'm for freedom. Can I say it like that? That feels funny coming out of my mouth right now, but I'll say it that way. Yeah, I'm for freedom. I'm pro freedom. I like freedom. I'm, I'm into freedom. How's that? I'm into it. I'm for it. I'm in favor of freedom, for the record. However, this is the dig I want to make. This is where I want to bear in just a little. I don't think freedom can be responsibly defined as the capacity to be able to do whatever you wish And I think it's that definition of freedom that gets us in trouble on so many levels. I find that for people of faith that I know, it's where these deeply problematic, flawed, uh, often toxic ideologies and theologies of God start. It's because they have an idea that God is the one who's radically free. Well, check. That sounds great. Oh, don't we have that great verse in Isaiah? That God is... His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. Check. All that's good. But consider this. Context for his ways are higher than our ways and thoughts are higher than our thoughts is about how God's mercy is beyond our reckoning. Our, and we do not have the human capacity to fathom God. the depth of God's mercy is what that text is about. It's God's love that makes God so unlike us not God's judgment. I'll say that one more time. It is not God's judgment that makes God so unlike us. It's God's endless capacity for self-giving, creative love that that makes God, while God is in us and God's all around us, in many ways very unlike us. It's the essence of God's holiness. I'm not making this up. This is the essential claim of John, is that God is not loving, but God is love. This is foundational scripture. God is Love. We're talking about the very character of God, who when he first reveals himself to Moses, I'm not going to do a whole riff here, 
but it's really tempting. But the essence from the beginning is God's mercy, God's mercy, God's mercy. It's God's mercy that is at the heart. Whatever and and whoever God is, mercy is at the center. Love is at the center. As the story of Scripture unfolds broadly over time, that just becomes more and more clear. So what, 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 what am I talking about with all that? Is it, that seems uh, getting far out there, doesn't Well, the point is that a lot of people don't believe that God is love. Ultimately, they believe that God is so radically free that God does whatever God wants. And for them, that's the very definition of what it means for God to be God, is that God is the one who's able to do whatever God chooses. God does whatever God wishes. God is able to act on God's own capricious whims. And what you have there is not really a portrait of God who's sovereign. That's the word people use for it. They were talking about the sovereignty of God, but really they don't mean sovereignty. What they're talking about is arbitrariness, a God who does whatever God wants, whenever God wants, acting on every whim is not a God that is sovereign. That is not a God who somehow is transcendent and sort of over against, you know, his rules. That's a, um, that's a God who's arbitrary. That's a God who's, who is capricious. That's a God that you can't trust. At the end of the day, if you have a God like that at the center of the universe, the universe itself is not benevolent, but malevolent. And <laughs> everything is ultimately headed down the tubes if we have a God who can't be relied upon, now I'm not saying that you you know that you put God in a in a cage and that God can be tamed. I'm not saying that God is not wild, nothing like that. But you have a God that can't be relied upon to be trustworthy in this way. It's where you know those of you who follow my teaching know I like to grapple with difficult text, and I don't omit them. I don't throw them out, and I'm, I feel like a lot of the stuff that's been most helpful and most enlightening for me has come from these texts of terror. To use Phyllis Tribble's helpful phrase. So I don't, you know, I don't shun the hard text, but I think the problem that people have is they often, it's it's like Two-Face and Batman mythology, you know? Can you see it? Can you see Two-Face? Whether it's the Aaron Eckhart and the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, or the very silly Tommy Lee Jones and the, uh, and the one of Valcoma, right? Can you see Two-Face flipping the coin? And depending on the camera angle, you can see the pretty side of his face, or you can see the clownish ugly, ghoulish, you know, uh, this, this depraved side. And that's how they read scripture. God looks like something in Judges one day. Uh, yeah, make sure to kill all the women and children, wipe everybody and everything out. Or maybe, 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 maybe the next day that God could be like Jesus, and it could be like the Sermon on the Mount. Really, we don't know, and it kind of just depends on how you feel. And uh, no wonder then people of faith end up being so erratic. And I don't want to use, um, well, I don't want to use any mental health uh, terms there that would, that would uh, stigmatize in some way. But you hear what I'm saying. Um, the, I mean, it, it's essentially you're like, it's like growing up with an abusive parent. It's like growing up with a, uh, severely alcoholic father or something like that. You know, it might be loving to you one minute, but depending, you know, one night the script might flip. What, what did, Jonathan, what, what, what are you talking about? Guns or whatever? Hang with me. When you believe that God is that way, when the God that you worship is that way, then, then that so idealizes a certain idea of freedom that then it becomes your idea that 
that's what freedom would look like for you. Freedom will look like for us like it does for the God that we worship. We believe in a God who ultimately, it's just, you know, that if that becomes the definition of God's power, is God can do whatever God wants, whenever God wants, whoever God wants, just because God wishes it, then to be made in the image of God, to be formed in the image of God, and we will be formed in the image of the God that we gaze upon, whatever God that we give our attention to, uh, we give our worship to, and that will shape our souls, then we start to think that that's what freedom must mean for us. We start to think that's what freedom must look like for us. So we need to be radically free the way that that God is radically free. Freedom! I'm not making fun of Braveheart. Great line in context, maybe. <laughs> the point for me tonight is simply this. When people have this, and I want to use that word, this idolatrous idea of freedom, idolatrous, it is idolatrous. And I say that word very strategically and with great emphasis because it's the only right word. There is a statue the, literally that we can form with our own hands, formed out of metal or whatever. That's It becomes more important than our, our neighbors. These ideals of freedom, these ideas of freedom, these ideas of being able to choose to do whatever you wish, whenever you wish, become more important to us than other bodies. It is the very definition of idolatry. This is why those stories in the Hebrew Bible are not quirky and off-putting and why are they there? They're, they're endlessly relevant to moments like this. We absolutely, if you don't understand in a moment like now how it is that people would be able to see God in fire and thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai and still melt down their own rings and create a calf to worship, if you think, if that's, if that doesn't make sense to you, I don't know how to help you because we see it every day. We see it absolutely every day. And when we make a God in our own image, I'm convinced that that God is always going to be one that's capricious. That God is going to be powerful in the ways that we wish we could be powerful. We wish we could be free like that, don't we? We wish we could be, we could have that kind of autonomy and agency. That if my enemy crosses me, that on a whim, I'm able to just wipe them out. I'm able to do whatever I feel. Oh, wouldn't it be great? To have that kind of control? Wouldn't it be great to have that kind of power over? Unfortunately, for me as a follower of Jesus, to understand anything of the Christian story, to understand anything of the story of Jesus of Nazareth, it's not a story about power over. It's always a story of surrender. It's always about self-sacrifice. The language of Paul and Philippians, the way that Jesus... Uh, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, even to the point of death on a cross. That, for us, it, this isn't just what the prophet looks like. That's not just what the teacher looks like. That's not just, you know, it's not a good idea. That's what God looks like. Our idea as Christians is that the ultimate revelation of God is the one who's there on the, cre on the tree 
and that while he's being actively tortured and crucified, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That is not just a good man. That's not just the better way to handle it. That's who God is. It's the very depth of the revelation of God is in that moment. So, you can see then how it is that how people think about who God is, how they think about the character of God, uh, the character of the God they worship greatly informs their politics and vice versa. I'm convinced most of the time it goes more like that. People have these ideas. They have their politics in mind already. <laughs> so, of course, that's going to dictate what the worship is going to look like. Because you know what? At the end of the day, that's the big reveal always in Scripture that messes with people. And I think... It's, I mean, it's not just a revelation. Uh, can can y'all hear this, this in the spirit? I'm saying it. It's the revelation. It's the revelation in the literal sense that it is the revelation. It is the apocalypse of St. John on Patmos. That this is the climax of the story for Christians. Is, oh, you know, dude, this is not the Wizard of Oz. You're not about to see a little man behind the curtain that's not going to impress you. You're right. You know, you're not going to see uh, you're not going to see that kind of weakness. You're not going to see cowardice. Oh, man. But it is a surprise because when you get the peek behind the curtain, <laughs> then what you see is not a little man who's trying to make him, himself seem bigger than he is. But you see a God that is, in fact, larger than life, laying down his own life. And oh, the revelation is the revelation is. Do you hear my words here? The revelation is for Christians that the God who's on the throne is the Lamb. That the one who rules and reigns is the Lamb. Which puts a lot of things in perspective. That if the God that we worship looks like self-sacrificial, self-giving, unconditional love, which doesn't mean there's never borders and parameters, etc., etc., yeah, self-sacrificial, unending love, if that's what God looks like, then what that means, I know I'm saying a lot of things, but I'm feeling this tonight. What that means is that for freedom for that God must look a whole lot different than the way we envisioned it before. Because freedom for that God is not going to be the ability to arbitrarily or capriciously act on every whim the way that we wish that we could when people act out against us in some way, what freedom looks like for that God is always acting according to God's own character, always acting according to God's own love. What makes this God so free? Not that God is able to choose to do whatever God feels, but the fact that God is free to always choose to act according to God's own character and is always true to God's self. That's the real definition of freedom, is this ability to always be true to oneself in a way that isn't about following capricious whims. Eh. Is that too much theology? Should it be a little more practical? I don't know. But I'm saying this on the practical side. As long as we still think that freedom looks like everybody getting to do what they want, we are deeply screwed no matter what else you insert in the mix. With the name of Jesus, 
without the name of Jesus, with whatever kind of measures, if the if the essential animating um, energy of a thing in terms of our systems of political uh, our political structures of power, if it's always about maintaining this absolute capacity to be able to exercise personal autonomy no matter what. Um, I think we always lose in that scenario. And without even having time to get into that tonight, it sure seems like that there are maybe better questions, especially for followers of Jesus, that there are concerns that are more ultimate than what would it mean for me to have the supreme expression of my own individual rights? As people who know what it is to be part of a community that is attempting to follow Jesus in some way, it's a different way of looking at the world. It's a different way of looking at the world when you're connected to a community. And when you really believe, uh, the way Paul will say on a number of different occasions, we consider one another's better than ourselves. We actually prefer others over ourselves. It's a very different way of functioning in the world when your primary point of reference is not how can I have as much autonomy and this endless capacity to always be able to make more choices? What if that doesn't become the ideal anymore? And there are I don't even say laws here, but they're higher ideas, higher ideals, bigger questions worth asking than what is going to leave me feeling the most free, again with freedom as defined as the capacity to choose. Well, I've said a lot of things. This is not a sermon, and I'm not ending it with a prayer, but I will like... Baptist preacher in old time gospel hour. I will end on a kind of challenge though. I would love it. I'd really love it. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, uh, whatever, wherever you identify on the political spectrum, conservative, liberal, however you feel about gun stuff, other stuff, I would love for you to reflect on this question for yourself. What would it mean? And I'm not telling you what the other questions sh- should be. What would it mean? For any of us to find deeper, bigger questions when it comes to how we think about culture, when it comes to how we think about society and our place in it uh, as individuals uh, who are within communities, like whatever. What would it look like to think about something bigger or different than maintaining this endless array of choices at all times. What would it look like to shift to something beyond that? Are there deeper questions? Are there are there deeper truths to be sought? Is that kind of agency everybody gets to do what they want at this party? Is that really is that really like the thing that you strive for? Is that really the thing that you lay down your life for? Is that really the thing that we say like, ah, oh, doesn't matter what we agree or disagree with anything else. We can all agree that everybody should be able to do what they feel within any given moment. 
and I, you know, again, I know not everybody's going to articulate it quite that way, but it's what it comes down to. It's ultimately this, uh, this eternal open-endedness. Man, I'm just wondering what it would look like if we found some different questions. I wonder if they're better questions. Wonder if they're better. Wonder if there's a better word than rights. I wonder if there are things that are worth insisting for more so than simply insisting on your own ability to not be too tethered and to always have more options. One of their better words than rights. Thanks for listening to the Zeitcast. If you want to like, subscribe, comment, give on Patreon, send a smiley face. <laughs> I'm thankful for all of it. But mostly I'm thankful that uh, we get to come in out of the storm a little bit, right? And have these kind of conversations. Maybe feel a little less crazy. Maybe some of you after listening to this rambling feel much more crazy. Glad you're here either way. Thanks for joining us for the Zycast. Talk to you again real soon.